Good morning. I am so funny. I keep myself in hysterics. I didn't, I really needed a sip of water. My throat was parched from singing, you know, I, and I thought, I've got to get up and speak. So, but I didn't want to do it during the song because that was a great song, you know. I felt like I should be standing. And, and so then I tried to grab a sip of water and I spilled it all down the front of myself. So. I'm a sheep, thank goodness. We're in 1 Corinthians 7. This passage, this chapter of four, 40 verses in our Bibles is uh, very precious. We're going to be in it this Sunday and next Sunday for sure. If I get to it, if I keep talking about getting to it, then we'll probably go another Sunday. But let's, uh, let's look at chapter 7. I'm going to read uh, not the whole chapter, but a few verses. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is in an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Don't miss next Sunday. Don't miss this one. For fun, an elementary school teacher quizzed her class with familiar proverbs. I'm hoping, I'm counting on the fact that you've heard some of these uh, sayings or proverbs. Uh, Better to be safe than... Well, the grade school student said, better to be safe than punch a fifth grader. (laughs) How about this one? A rolling stone gathers no moss. The class said, plays the guitar. (laughs) A bird in the hand is... We're two in the bush. The class said, a real mess. (laughs) The squeaking wheel gets the grease. The class said, annoying. I think, therefore I am. The class said, therefore I get a headache. There's nothing new under the... The class said, under the bed. A penny saved is a penny. The class said, not much. (laughs) Two's company, three's a crowd. The class said, the musketeers. Laugh and the whole world laughs with you. Cry and you cry alone. And the class said, you have to blow your nose. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, and the class said, when you leave the sprinkler on. Of course, they weren't in a drought. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. If that were not the case, then commercials would not gift-wrap the culture and present it to us as the better life, the life that we need, the life that we can't live without. Life is greener. Every commercial is saying, life is greener if you buy this. Live like these hired models and actors. Have what we have. Do what we do. Your dream life, your happiness, your success, is over there, not here, not where you're at. Years ago, I've forgotten so much, but I've never forgotten this. I read where a boss ran off, left his wife of many years and ran off with his younger assistant. 
After six months, he was begging his wife to let him come back. A co-worker was surprised, and the boss explained, the grass looked greener on the other side of the fence, but it turned out to be astroturf. The grass does look greener. It's ever true, even in relationships, even in marriage. How many unmarrieds imagine themselves happier if married? How many marrieds imagine themselves happier if divorced? How many divorced imagine themselves happier if they'd never married? And so it goes, single, married, divorced, widowed. Which station of life is best for you? If there's a choice, which choice is the right choice? These are the types of questions Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Beginning here, Paul speaks, and you pick it up in the very first verse. Paul speaks to the types of questions that have come to him in a letter. He's not addressing the reports, the verbal reports that were brought to him by Chloe's people. You remember from chapter 1. But with Chloe's people, they brought a letter. Perhaps it was from the new pastor who uh, was asking Paul for counsel and advice on some issues that the Corinthians were facing in their present circumstances. Paul tackles a range of questions, and I want to encourage you to read chapter 7 this week more than once. He even takes on the question of whether it's best to divorce an unbelieving spouse. For all the questions suggesting change and that the better, godlier, holier life is over there, if I quit sex or quit marriage or quit something to start something better, Paul has a theme here in this chapter. And he keeps saying to them, I want you first to imagine what God can do with you right where you are. Imagine what God can do with you right where you are. In chapters 1 through 6, Paul was addressing concerns that Chloe's people brought, reports of what was going on. But it seems that Chloe may have brought a letter at that time, or it came in another time, and what was in that letter is taken up in chapters 7 through 15 chapter 7 through 15, and the first concern of the letter is excerpted in verse 1. This is the topic. 
it is good. I'm giving you a very straight, accurate translation. It is good for a man. The word is not husband. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, there seems to be a concern that there's a general call to abstinence, to celibacy. The chapter gives us some important clues as to why. In verse 26, Paul uses the words, given the present crisis, be as you are. Given the present crisis. That's a very powerful statement. It's just a little window. It's something that we could just slip right over without giving a second thought. But to those in the situation, that's an acknowledgement of a whole series of things that are going on. And we know from other historical records something about that situation. Paul visited Corinth in A.D. 51 through 52. He was there in that period time. In 51 and 52, there were famines and grain shortages. I've never known a famine. Have you? We know from historical records, this brought tremendous fear upon the people. There are accounts and I could bore you with reading them, although they're really kind of fascinating because they give you a window, you know, an inside look at what it was like. There were riots. They tried to bodily take the people they thought were responsible for controlling the grains. They were shaken with tremendous fear and uncertainty about the future. That's important for us to appreciate because Paul was there during such a crisis and there was another in 55, 51, 52, and 55 over that whole area. And some of you may even remember from when we were in Acts that there was the prophecy of a worldwide famine. As I recall, it was in chapter 18 also in this period of time. Notice also verse 29. Here we have, not just here, but several themes throughout the balance of the chapter, what we have yet to read together, in which Christ's return is expected. It's near. In fact, listen to the words Paul uses. The appointed time has grown very short. You remember that Peter and Apollos, as well as Paul, all have been in Corinth and taught. And even though these Christians have only been Christians three, four years, 
many of them in marriages when they came to Jesus Christ. Sometimes in a marriage in which one member of that marriage, the husband maybe, or the wife, becomes a devout, earnest follower of Jesus Christ, but the spouse does not. Those are the kinds of situations. And now with this teaching as background, just don't you think that the Corinthians would remember Jesus' words that with his coming, there will be famine? Mark chapter 13, verse 8. And his words picturing the difficulty and the crisis and the words about being pregnant or nursing a child and its difficulties in the coming crisis. Mark 13, 17. So with just a few touches of background and the situation, all of a sudden verse 1 takes on a little different importance. It may be that avoiding sex with a woman isn't just a moral concern. It's a practical concern. It's a concern that takes up having children at such a difficult time and feeding and nursing and providing for family. It's dividing the economy and peoples into the haves and have-nots and making the future very uncertain. And perhaps a heightened sense of real devotion to Jesus Christ that we all realize is just not there when things are kind of like an Indian summer and it's just a lazy time of life and the good times are rolling. And we're just enjoying life and all of its luxuries and benefits and blessings. I don't care who you are or what, where you are and what station of the economy, whether you're up in the 1% or down here with me in the 80%. We've never had it better. And it takes maybe a 9-11 or a drought or the difficulties of a bubble-burst economy like we've known since 2008, to maybe challenge us and cause us to realize, I'm not all that. I need the Lord. I don't need Him just when times are tough. I need Him all the time. I need to cultivate this so that when difficult times come, I'm able to face them and not crumble before them. Well, with the bigger picture, all the questions take on new meaning. If Jesus is near, do I get married? I I celebrated my 41st wedding anniversary in March. I still remember how vividly. I can remember driving down the freeway, praying, Lord, please don't come before Shelly and I get married. Well, if it was an issue then, what's it like for them? Do I get married? I'm, in, I, I'm engaged. Do I go ahead and follow through and, and, and marry her or marry him? 
I'm with an unbelieving spouse. Do I need to get out of this thing? It's a drag on my spiritual walk. We need to kind of up our game spiritually, not play it down. Do I leave? Do I get out of this so I can really live full time, full force for Jesus Christ like I know deep down in my heart I want to do, but you know, it's just so doggone hard in this culture. Do I stay single? These questions and more Paul is taking up in chapter 7. Do read and reflect on this chapter. I'm going to pick up the specifics next Sunday. You'll see that Paul is, as you read it, I do want you to see that Paul is a gentle pastor. He really is a gentle pastor. And I want you to pick that up. You'll you'll see it. He's caring. He is biblical. He he grounds some things in the clear direction and commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in other cases, things are not so clear. And so he gives his settled best judgment, his opinion, but not as a hardliner, not as a black and white thinker with easy do's and don'ts. He's struggling with them to be tender and thoughtful, a counselor who's very sensitive to the hardships and hard questions that they face. And in the middle of all of this, we come to verses 17 through 24. And I have never appreciated this. And to me, it is the most touching, powerful section of the whole chapter. Many have thought, Paul, you, you, you kind of got sidetracked. You're losing it in your old age, man. You've, you've gone off on a little trip. Come back to your subject. You know, marriage, widows, those who are engaged and about to be married, those who are wishing they should divorce or thinking they should divorce. What are, you, what are you doing in verse 17 and following? Let's look at verses 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her and to which God has called him or her. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? At that time, do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called in the Lord, he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. 
Likewise, he who is free when called as a, bond, uh, as a slave of Christ, he who is free who has been called as a slave of Christ, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, when I read this, for the really in earnest a couple of weeks back, I was trying to figure out what this was all about. And I'm convinced that this is the epicenter. This is the theological epicenter of the whole chapter. It's the foundational principles that Paul is tapping into no matter where you are in life, certainly in your relationships, but in all conditions, situations, stations, and ranks of life. Throughout this chapter, there's a theme, uh, a musical refrain, a catchy tune that keeps coming through. Abide with God right where you are. We even sang about that this morning. But it's stated very specifically in verse 24. And it's a really pretty powerful wording. I would, I would word it this way. Uh, abide with God. But what you need to appreciate, when the, we translate the word with, with the word with, we say abide with, but you, could, you need to understand abide near or close at the side of. God. Stay close. Stay near. Stay at the very, in the presence, abide in the presence of God. These are the kinds of things that if two people were in the same room, abide with God, applying the same, they would be side by side. Here in verses 19 17 through 24, Paul points to two concrete examples of harder changes compared to easier changes in order to show the beauty of God's grace and the glory of the gospel without exception. He takes two examples in which you just can't get up and change. You can't just change your spots, and yet the gospel and the, the reality of God, of his availability to you, the kind of intimate care and power that he can bring to your life is not restricted by who you are or who, who you aren't. It's, it's not restricted or in any way confined according to the color of your skin or the rank of your uh, bank account or your portfolio or whether you think you're pretty or you uh, think you aren't. It, none of that matters, Paul says. And if that's real, he says, then before you jump to make some kind of a change, just, and I'm using the word imagine, 
Because every time he says, stay, wait, abide, in effect, he's saying, have you given some thought to who you are in Jesus Christ right where you are? Have you given yourself that Have you given yourself the validity in Christ to make a difference in the situation and not just be a victim of the situation? Has it entered your heart that God could use you in ways that you do not think God can use you? Maybe sometimes it is the case that we're so busy and quick to think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence that we realize that with God, the grass is as green as it's ever going to be right where we're at. You, the Christian, do not need to seek the right situation in order to enjoy Christian freedom or to serve God's call effectively. God's best for you isn't found somewhere else. That's Paul's point in verse 17. He says, to each as the Lord assigned, each as God called. Let each, in keeping with the Lord's assignment and God's call, walk. That's his word, walk. It's a loaded term. In other words, Conduct your life, live your life, your Christian life, your life in Jesus Christ, your life under his tutelage, uh, with his leading, in his footsteps, through his strength and power. Walk. And when he uses the word called, and you'll see this, it's profoundly made plain in verse 18. When he uses the word call, he's not talking about some special calling in the way we use it. He's talking about what we would call conversion. When did you hear the gospel and respond from the bottom of your heart and say, I need you, Jesus. You're the Lord and Savior of my life. When was that? That's the kind of call Paul's talking about. And where are you at that point? Well, for the Corinthians, some of them are in a mixed marriage. Now I'm a believer and he's not, or she's not. And as we see right here, Paul even says, you know what? Some are slaves. Some are circumcised. Should they get uncircumcised? And some are uncircumcised, should they get circumcised? And Paul takes up some difficult situations to say that the same power, the same freedom, liberty, and new life in the gospel is ours no matter where we are, our station in life, or our situation. And he just wants them not to be too quick to leave without thinking, who can I be right where I'm at for Christ? I think that's a valid issue. Because if Jesus touched you in that situation, 
Maybe he's going to use you to touch others in that situation that's going to double down on the power of what he's doing in that situation with your faith in life. Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. You know, he says that four times in Corinthians. This is my rule in all the churches. He doesn't say that to hardly anywhere else. Why does he say it four times in Corinthians? I think it's because he's trying to tell them, your thinking is off, not mine. You're out of step. I'm not. In fact, at the end in chapter 7, verse 40, he says, I too have the Spirit of God which is kind of like saying, you're telling me you prayed about it. Well, I prayed about it too. I told you once about my pastor, how a woman, as the case was, could have been a man. I've heard it from men too, but in this case, it was a woman who went for counsel. She was in a marriage that she wanted to get out of. And she said, God's told me that I'm supposed to divorce him. Well, the, the pastor listened. They had another meeting the next week. And so he just mostly listened. And then the following week, when they got back together, he said, oh, I just wanted you to know in the last week, I've prayed about it a great deal, and God told me he's changed his mind. There are some situations where I guess your prayer and my prayer are going to, just as Paul says here, you, you believe the, the Lord is leading you, but he ends this with saying he, he's, he's leading me too. And we have to consider these things. God's best for you may be what he wants you to learn where you are. Um, my pastor, Ron Blanc, I, I, I can't remember the situation or what I went to him for. And I was, I was ready to get out of some situation and eager to go to, into another. And, and he told me, he said, John, sometimes you're not free to leave until you're free to stay. Because when you're free to stay and you leave, you've left for the right reasons. Sometimes when you don't want to stay, it's because you want to get out for the wrong reasons. The principle in verse 17 and in this chunk that I think is the epicenter of the chapter is that to be spiritual or godly, you don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to be something else. God's going to work through you if you'll give him the liberty and the lordship of your life right where you are. Just imagine what he can do before you jump ship and change direction. If you change, if you change, great. Just change as a Christian. Just change as a follower of Christ. If you stay, great, but stay as a Christian. Stay as a follower of Christ. That's the theme of what Paul is saying in this section and throughout 
the chapter. He says, you can be all God wants you to be anywhere in verses 18 through 20. Quick changes, rapid adjustments in the pit of unhappiness are tempting. Are they not? Sometimes we've worked ourselves into a situation where it is just miserable because we've got a miserable outlook. And so when an opportunity to change comes along, and if we can kind of justify it, at least superficially, we're out the door quickly. It's tempting. We may even think if it's easy, it must be from God. He's made it easy. But Paul here touches on tough, hard, and nearly impossible situations when he talks about circumcision and uncircumcision, slave and free. It'd be easier for a freedman to become enslaved than it would for a slave to be freed. And when I'm talking about the slave, I'm not talking about slavery in America's history and in the building of this country. I'm talking about under the Roman Empire, where there were slaves of every nationality and rank and people. And probably, I don't know the percentages, but my guess would be that what we call the middle class would be the slave class. Your wealthy, your upper class, your aristocracy, that would be the 1%. And then you would have your plebes and uh, basically the rest. Slaves in the Roman Empire, by the way, were the people of profession in many cases. And it, it wasn't a bad life for many of them. You had no rights. You had no choices. Paul cannot say to a slave here, hey, uh, seize the opportunity. Choose a different life. Impossible. Impossible. Talk about a lord, a master, an owner. But see, that's been changed. That's been swapped for the, the creator of the universe, the benevolent, gracious, loving Lord. And so Paul does say, he says, if, if, if your master, if your owner gives you the opportunity to take your freedom, do so. But many were respected, well-treated, doctors, down to people who took care of children. The upper class entrusted their own kids' education and care to people of the slave class. But yes, they could be mistreated too. The point I'm trying to make is it wouldn't be easy for someone who, who is a slave. That's why in Paul's letters, he talks about slaves and masters because those, those conditions of life did not change easily, if ever in this life. We enjoy such freedom, such opportunity, such choice. What about the 
circumcised becoming uncircumcised. I know, I smiled the first time I read that as a new Christian. I got to quit. I'll save it for next week because I'll just give you this. Look up epispasm, E-P-I-S-P-A-S-M, epispasm. That's actually the Greek word that Paul uses here. He says, if you're circumcised, don't epispasm. It's a procedure, very painful and long-lasting procedure because people who were circumcised wanted so much to fit into the society that when they exercised and they did so in the nude, they were ridiculed. They wanted to fit in. And they were willing to efface, to alter surgically at great physical pain. They were willing to efface the marks of their covenant identity in order to fit in with what was going on, to be a part. How many of us are faced with, with that temptation? And Paul says, you don't, you don't need to change your color, your feathers, your spots. You don't, yeah, you can change your hair color. But you don't need to. The world tells you 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 need to. The world says you're not suitable, acceptable. I can't quite love you or put up with you completely just the way you are. And if it's not saying that, some of us are thinking that. And we really have bought into that, that lie that God didn't make you right. Or that idea that beauty is skin deep. And it is only skin deep. The real beauty is what Christ does in us, free of charge. All we have to do is say, Lord, you take over. Sometimes I think, I need to get skinny jeans, or maybe a leather jacket, or some tattoos, or maybe I need to look younger. Maybe I should dye my hair in order to... Uh, Reach you with the gospel. What do you think I need to do to be effective for Jesus Christ? You can make a difference right where you are. Paul is not saying you should never change. He is not. We'll see that. You'll see that as you read it. But just imagine today, not tomorrow, not over there, right where you are. God wants to continue or he wants to initiate. He wants to begin a great work in you that starts from the inside out, that will change your life, change your countenance. And people will look past your exterior 
to see what it is about you that is so beautiful, and it's because you're Christ-like. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us, but uh, after I say amen, and there's some music playing, if you'd like to come forward, meet me down here along with uh, any of the pastors, elders, their wives, and uh, pray with us, come and pray. That uh, thing of moving with the Lord may be starting right now in what he's prompting you to do in your life. And if you'd like to pray about that, whether it's for yourself or someone else, or even to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, we invite you to come. Father, thank you for your word. It is so full of powerful truth that is life-changing. Thank you for your son upon which it is all predicated, all established, all made real. And thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit, your presence in our life operating to lead and guide and direct and encourage and strengthen and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, God bless you.